This podcast is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S.co. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. Hi, Parat. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Great to be with you again. Yes, I think it's almost a year since we last talked, right? Perfect timing. Yes, the reason why you are back is because your book is finally out. So who am I talking to? I'm talking to Parak Khanna, Senior Research Fellow in the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, also a CNN Global Contributor, and now an author of a new book called Connectography. So Parak, since we last spoke, what have you done? Well, I've been finishing this book, as you know, with publishing... By the time you finish the book and the time that it actually arrives on the bookshelves of Kinokuniya can be about uh, seven or eight months process. But in the meantime, and I think uh, you and, and your listeners will very much enjoy this, I've been working a lot on producing the maps that go into this book. What we've done is to work with some custom cartography teams in some fantastic academic departments around the world who have been making these beautiful and truly unique uh, bespoke maps that help to capture some of geopolitical, economic, and infrastructural trends in the world. And there's two inserts of those maps that are in the book. I'm pretty sure your book is not going to be limited to just Kinokuniya bookstores in Singapore, but probably the whole of Asia Pacific. Yes, it'll be everywhere. It's already going to be in all the airports. It's in Changi Airport, Hong Kong Airport, all the bookstores uh, in all the major cities. And one interesting thing is I saw some of your maps in your recent TED Talk about how mega cities are changing the map of the world. Is that the case? That is right. So in that talk, we uh, actually worked with Autodesk, which is the CAD design software engineering company, to produce these digital uh, visual animations of global infrastructure patterns and mega cities, urbanization. And those are similar to some of the ones that are excerpted in the book. But in the, in the book, we also have ones that are much more a topographical and very sort of earth tone based. And you'll see the, the contrast between the two. They were both very data driven exercises for sure. First of all, I want to thank your publisher, Random House, who actually gave me an advanced digital copy. And I actually have read the book, Connectography, Mapping the Future of Global Civilization. And I have to say, it's a very good book. In fact, I actually went back and read your first two books out of this part of the trilogy. But before that, I wanted to ask you, what is the main theme of the book? Right. So connectography, of course, is a neologism that derives from the fusion of geography and connectivity. What I wanted to argue is that this ancient adage, geography is destiny, is no longer true, and it's been replaced by a new maxim, and that is connectivity is destiny. And the reason is because we are building so much infrastructure in transportation, energy, and communications that we're literally physically linking every single part of the entire world. And in particular, we're linking the world's major cities, mega cities, that are the nodes of uh, demographics as well as economics. And that new map of the world is what connectography is all about. And the dynamics of the economic, strategic, geopolitical, even environmental, demographic, and social, all of these issues are, are tackled in this book. 
So this book is the last of the trilogy you have done with your earlier books, The Second World and How to Run the World. Can you briefly talk about how these perspectives of the first two books led to this one? Absolutely. You know, it was designed as a trilogy, but the content sort of flowed in a logical kind of arc. And Second World began as a travel narrative through uh, emerging markets and what you might call middle tier countries or middle powers to look at how the diplomacy of Europe, China, and America was competing to gain influence over them. But the proposition was that we are in a permanently multipolar world. And that's certainly still the case. With How to Run the World, I argued that the world is not only multipolar, but also multi-actor. And I focused on the complementary and competing roles of NGOs and companies alongside governments in a new diplomatic framework that I called mega diplomacy. And I applied it to kind of all of the world's global public goods challenges. And now I'm proposing with Connectography that a, a big part of the, the new framework, as well as the solution to some of our global challenges, is enhancing the degree of connectivity among populations by way of this physical infrastructure investment. And how once every 500 years, you change the very nature of the system and you move in the same way that we move from a medieval world to a modern world. We're now moving from a modern world of nations, states and borders towards a, a postmodern, if you will, system that is built around cities, infrastructures and supply chains. So how does the reader navigate the book? What is the roadmap of the book for the reader? Right. So, you know, I begin by laying out the real physical and empirical volume of global connectivity from the railways and the pipelines to the highways and the internet cables and as well as urbanization and therefore really sketching out the map of this global connected civilization, if you will. And then I talk about the geopolitical dynamics like devolution and aggregation. So the more powerful cities become, the less they want to be ruled by countries and central governments. At the same time, they want to constantly forge new networks and be part of new communities. So all of this tribalism and devolution, whether it's Scotland or whether it is Catalonia, or even uh, the Brexit, the UK potentially from, from England, all of this we view as being a negative form of tribalism. And I view it as an intermediate step towards a new kind of network organization into larger regional structures like the European Union or ASEAN and so forth. Then I look at how this impacts geopolitical relations because countries are traditionally fight over borders, but now they're so connected to each other that the real tension is over the, the economic value added of the supply chains. So if you think about the oil pipelines connecting Russia and Europe, the oil and gas pipelines, or you think about electricity grids or railways, the real tension between countries on a day-to-day -day basis is who's getting, who's making the most money from the economic activity that is being co jointly produced in both sides. And I think that that is uh, one of the kind of novel aspects uh, of the book. I move into, again, you know, demographic issues, inequality issues, how we need to invest much more in empowering populations to be physically and digitally connected. I look at the ruthless competition among special economic zones, these supply chain hubs. I call them pop-up cities. And even the rise of new global cities, places like Dubai that have not traditionally been on our economic and strategic maps, but are very much uh, taking central position now. And then I also look at some very kind of outlier issues that people don't normally think of in the geopolitical context, like uh, climate change. And I say, you know, if the predictions and models are correct, 
and you wind up having a four degree Celsius temperature rise from the 1990 baseline, you could actually imagine the world food production shifting very far northward. And if it does, that will be uh, have, a, have a very sort of seismic impact on human geography, where we locate ourselves and where we need to be. And the punchline being that most of the world's food production will take place in Russia and Canada, which are the two largest and yet most uh, depopulated countries in the world. So in simple terms, how do you define connectivity in the book? Well, connectivity is defined as sort of, you know, the, the kinds of infrastructures, again, in particular, transportation, energy and communications infrastructures that physically link you know, human population centers. So whether, you know, in particular cities. So that is connectivity is a very physical thing. And I do that for a reason, because today, particularly amongst a younger generation, when we talk about connectivity, you tend to think just of the internet. And you think of it as an ethereal and intangible and a digital and invisible thing. But connectivity, as I point out, you know, ad nauseum in the book is a physical thing. It is, again, a physical road, a physical pipeline, a physical internet cable, and so forth. And so the fun, part of the fun in this book was producing all of these maps that really show you what the physical dimension of this uh, ethereal notion of global connectivity really is. It's interesting you pointed this out because I, I recently took a map of all the underwater internet, the cables that are actually linking the internet, and it actually looks very similar to most of the trade routes that we know in the past. Coming back to that is that what are the drivers to this connectivity? Is it just integrated economies, merging of physical and cyber realities, transportation, feedback loops, and infrastructure alliances? Exactly. So all of these things, and you mentioned infrastructure alliances is a very important part of it because it helps us to see how infrastructure changes traditional geopolitics. You know, we don't, you know, one country such as China doesn't conquer its neighbors. In fact, it actually uh, builds across them and it sort of uh, colonizes not its territory, but its supply chain. And so that, that is one very important example of how the density of connectivity has a very, very significant impact on geopolitics. Well, in the case of integrated economies, are you referring more towards the trade zones and different alliances within regions? Absolutely. So, I mean, it's not all about sort of, you know, one country such as China manipulating its neighbors through infrastructure. Mm. This infrastructure is also used to create regional zones of peace, such as East Africa or ASEAN. And those are two of the ones that I spend the most time on in the book because they represent the evolution in post-colonial regions from a sort of, you know, from a political paradigm towards a functional paradigm. And again, that's what infrastructure does. It gets countries to think beyond their political boundaries and think more about their functional cooperation. So that's happening very, very strongly here in our region, in ASEAN, where you can think about, you know, uh, 50, 60 years ago in the immediate post-colonial era, the tensions between Indonesia and Malaysia and Singapore and the tensions, of course, in Indochina and the Vietnam War and so forth. Today, you have a situation where you're building multimodal corridors and high-speed rail networks and uh, cross-border supply chains, and every country is benefiting from a division of labor with the other countries, those that are strong in agriculture, trading with those that are strong in manufacturing, trading with those that are strong in services, and together assembling products that they're going to be exporting jointly across the Pacific Ocean through the TPP trade agreement. So you see a totally different logic two or three generations 
after end of colonialism. Then, but what about in the case of say emerging of physical and cyber realities? Then, I mean, you're talking a little bit about the sharing economy and also the way how online and offline is intersecting between two worlds. Absolutely, and this is what I call the, the cyber civilization, if you will. And again, what it really comes down to for me is a focus on the individual. And that is the member of the global digital workforce. The fact that more and more people today, and by some estimates, you know, 30 or 40 percent of the American uh, population, a, work, a working population, is freelancers who are working, you know, sort of in in part-time work, digitally working from one project to another project, and need new kinds of portable health insurance. Who are working in co-working spaces who are self-employed and registered as self-employed. This is the new reality of this global uh, digital workforce. And it's obviously enabled by connectivity and by entrepreneurialism. And I think that is the future for most of the world's young people. Do you think that, like, for example, social networks such as Facebook and WeChat, they have actually devolved the physical boundaries? And in such a case, they are also certain kind of drivers of connectivity? Well, yes, indeed. And so that's, uh, for me, a very important part of the book is talking about the cohesive nature of these cloud communities, the ways in which people who can identify with other people in cyberspace form bonds with them uh, intellectually or ideologically, form economic units with them of you know, transmission, you know, whether they're using cryptocurrencies or otherwise. And to actually pursue an agenda together, the way in which WikiLeaks does, or Facebook groups do, or, or Arab, Arab resistance movements do, or diaspora groups do when they're influencing uh, politics in their home countries, all of these are examples of what I call cloud communities having real tangible agency and effectiveness on the ground. One thing I like about the book is the new maxim, connectivity is destiny. I understand you talk about it earlier. That replaces the age-old wisdom of geography is destiny. Do you want to elaborate a little bit more on the concept itself? Absolutely. Well, I mean, not just students of geography, but students of history who are studying global history, which is to say, you know, history of disparate geographies. They very often learn that notion that, that geography dictates the ultimate economic success that you can have. It dictates, you know, who your neighbors are, obviously, and your susceptibility or vulnerability to those neighbors. And yet, now we live in a world where everyone is so connected physically as well as digitally that you can no longer say that where you are born or where you live will, ulti will ultimately dictate your fate. And one of the logical twists that I use to, to make this case is that even though most people in the world never leave the country in which they're born, connectivity is not about leaving your physical country. It's really about urbanization. Just moving from the countryside to a city makes you a connected human being. And it makes you someone with, that, with the option to identify yourself you know, with your own society or with foreign people. So I give the example of the number of international friends that people have on Facebook. It used to be only 10% of an average person's friends were international and now it's 25%. So in the old days, the Silk Road, which is a physical trading road, connected the East and the West and become an important center for economic activity. Has the digital economies shifted political geography such that country borders do not matter anymore? And what is the substitution from political to functional geography? I, I thought that part of the book was actually pretty interesting when I read it. Right. So, you know, I, a lot of people want 
the answer to be either or, you know, an abdication of politics in favor of functional integration. The truth is it's obviously both at the same time, and smart politics enables functional integration. And we still have a very important role for states, for governments, for borders, because those are forms of governance, they're forms of social delivery, welfare delivery, and of course they're also very important frictions. I don't argue for that that there must be a borderless world. I argue that we should attempt to manage frictions in a way that does not inhibit the value of flows. So it's a good thing to have people migrating across borders and spreading economic activity and sharing culture, but it's a bad thing if everyone is carrying Ebola and infecting everyone else. It's a good thing to have emails exchanged across the world instantaneously. It's a bad thing if viruses are spreading and wrecking, wreaking havoc on the critical infrastructure of every country. So you need borders and boundaries and what I call frictions in order to control the negatives, but to allow the positives. And borders are a good example of that. Does that mean also that for functional geography, it also could be a legal border as well? Because each country has its own legislation. So the definitions of how you think about privacy and think about regulation is very different because you have these physical borders? Yes. So, I mean, you have physical borders. And again, within them, governments have different regulations. But again, if you look at regional aggregation, like the European Union, many laws are shared because of the functional uh, integration you know, between countries. So just because you have two different countries, it doesn't mean that their laws are necessarily different because most laws across European countries are in fact the same. How is the global supply chain changed in the new world? Well, my argument is that it is in fact the supply chain that is becoming the dominant mode of human organization. It's that, you know, we all belong to supply chains. Yes, we all physically reside within countries, but everyone belongs to a certain supply chain. You all, uh, you know, we all work for a certain company that's that, you know, operates within supply chains and markets and so forth. So it does reorganize space and countries, governments are choosing to benefit by associating themselves with supply chains as much as possible. They've realized that the path to economic growth and development and success is bundling as many supply chains within your geography as possible. So I'm very cautious about saying that one thing is replacing the other. Functional geography and supply chains are not replacing governments, but they are augmenting their roles both within borders and across borders. What are the good and the bad that it has contributed to globalization and connecting the world? Yeah, I wanted to make sure because, of course, there's a lot of people who identify supply chains with globalization and globalization with exploitation. So I wanted to take seriously, you know, the pros and the cons of this supply chain world. And, of course, some of the uh, negative aspects are the fact that we have more people who are treated as slaves and bonded laborers than ever in history. We have deforestation because there's you know, nothing in nature that cannot be harvested by supply chains and technology and shipped around the world. So we have a, a tremendous amount or an accelerated exploitation of the planet, of people, of resources and so forth because of the reach of global supply chains and because governments are not managing the situation in a sustainable way. But we also have enormous positives because billions of people are lifted out of poverty because they have access to basic goods that are delivered by supply chains. Jobs are created for the bottom billions of people. Technologies such as mobile phones or even just basic medicines are spread through supply chains. On balance, my belief is that the positives outweigh the negatives. And I also, though, of course, as you see with the notion of 
connectivity is destiny, is that I see a certain inevitability about it. And I use a lot of physics analogies, you know, in the book, which I know you would appreciate, <laughs> Bernard, your background. There's a lot of this is a book about geopolitics, but I use more physics than politics to explain what's going on. Because ultimately, the property of any given system is entropy, and it's also that flows prevail over fric friction, that ultimately the interactions and the capacity of any two units to interact with each other grows over time. And that is inevitably what is going to happen in our system as well. How does one balance between flow and friction with physical geographies and digital space? I mean, given technologies are accelerating in a quick pace, does that mean that we are living in a change in change world? Yes, that's exactly right. It's, it's change in change. That's, that's, that's what's going on. And we don't, there isn't one answer to your question in terms of how do we balance that? How do we cope with that with such rapid change? It's an evolving process. And, and as I said before, you want to maintain the openness that you need to capital flows, but you want to limit the amount of hot money that can destabilize your currency and your markets, right? You want to be open to agriculture, but not to disease. You want to be open to talent, but not to terrorists, and so on and so on. And as we can see with the politics of Europe today and other countries, there is just this constant calibration that's going on. And, you know, smart countries are the ones that are, are getting that balance right. When I glance at the world map, it's only the zero order of what you discuss in the book. Probably putting in the internet cables, the mobile carrier networks, the supply chain routes for logistics. I guess I understand the world in the first order. This is using some physics analogy here. My question to you is, what are the new entities that needs to be added to this map in order to have a better and a much more well-informed view of the world? I would find it hard to add anything more to these maps that is static in nature, that is not three-dimensional or you know four-dimensional in nature. I mean... We have had to remove certain physical infrastructures just for aesthetic purposes to make sure that things actually sort of, you know, fit and look right. So it's been uh, extremely very thought provoking and challenging exercise to produce these maps. Uh, there is very little in here that you could add that isn't, you know, sort of quantum in nature, if you will, that's you know, sort of constantly moving like data, like ideas, you know, those kinds of flows can't be captured in the static maps that you put in a that you put in a book but we know that they're there of course for example culture well exactly you know cultural flows ideas flows i write about it a great deal in the book so for example again the power of diasporas to be a force for development for the transmission of ideas of language and so forth i have a greater appreciation for those forces and i try as best as i can to create maps that show you cultural zones and the amount of, for example, remittances flowing between the large South Asian populations of the Middle East and, uh, you know, the countries of South Asia. So I try as best as is actually possible with today's two-dimensional mapping technologies to actually show these things. Specifically for Asia-Pacific, you have argued in the book that devolution is actually part of the trends in connectography. How does that affect Asian nations and what are China and India's place in this new world with emerging multi-billion economies that's actually powered by smartphones? Well, so devolution is not as big a trend here as it is in other re regions because you have fairly culturally defined nations already and you're very diverse societies, uh, ethnically, of course, in, in Southeast Asia. So I don't worry 
so much about devolution, though, of course, we have had, you know, the birth of East Timor, for example, and so forth. But I think what's more interesting in this region is the aggregation, which is the rise of ASEAN, the ASEAN Economic Community, the East Asian Forum, the ASEAN region, the Asian Regional Forum, all of these, and also the RCEP a regional comprehensive economic partnership trade area. All of these are examples of aggregation. And that's what's interesting today to see the different combinations of cities, of countries, of regions, and, and even across regions, because you see India and China, for example, building a Bangladesh, China, India, Bangladesh, Myanmar, China trade corridor, for example, between them. So you're seeing even across rivals, even across subregions, you're seeing this infrastructure being used to, to integrate not only within regions, but across them. I'm very bullish on that phenomenon in this region. And then, of course, there's the digital dimension, the transportation dimension we haven't even talked about. You know, low-cost air travel, for example, and the billions of Asians that are traveling across each other's countries, trading and visiting and investing in each other's countries, studying in each other's countries. And, of course, financial flows, trade flows, all of those are rising, and the digital flows as well. So all of those things point to greater integration in this region in the years ahead. I want to understand this. How does connectivity have an impact to potential physical walls and tensions in the region? Yes, I mean, so, you know, there are, there are numerous significant geopolitical tensions in this region, whether it's the South China Sea, whether it's uh, the Mekong River, whether it's internal politics, in, whether it's in Malaysia or Thailand, Vietnam, elsewhere. There are tensions, of course, without a doubt. And then, you know, with China primarily more so than between ASEAN countries. But what I find interesting is that because there is such a strong supply chain interdependence, also, of course, because there is the clear fact of a sort of, you know, long-term Chinese dominance, these tensions are being better managed than most people from the outside would give it credit for. Now, personally, I believe that there is still an, an unfortunate degree of political immaturity in this region. I would like to see the institutions and the diplomacy be much more developed. I'd like to see the sort of military supervision be much more robust multilaterally, all of these things. And I do think that, in a way, Asian countries are playing with fire by being so immature still at this point. I think there's still quite a ways to go, but at the same time, I'm fairly confident in the pragmatism that is also widespread in the region. So what is the end state of our world after everything is connected? Yes, no, that's a fantastic question. And I think there's two answers. The first is that you, we will move. I mean, a global system is actually a collection of very strong regional orders so the fact that you know we have these uh, the North American Union, the South American Union, the European Union, and African Union, and ASEAN, and so forth, to me, all of this signals that we are that, that global governance and global order is going to be the sum of these regional orders, and I think that's a good thing. You know, a stable world has has five or six stable pillars, not just one. So I think that's actually a good thing. I'd rather be on a, uh, you know, a buggy with four strong wheels than on a unicycle, right? And that's the analogy that I would make. So that's one dimension. And then you have lots of connectivity across them because we're always trying to optimize the division of labor. And the division of labor is a you know, sociological concept that I use a lot in this book to point out that, you know, it's, it's Adam Smith meets David Ricardo meets Emile Durkheim, as I say. It's a world in which we can optimize our land and our labor and our distribution of people 
and resources around the world, and that's something that we should take full advantage of. So even though you have stable regions, you don't have necessarily self-sufficiency in any of them. You might in terms of energy, but maybe not in terms of food or not in terms of technology. And every region is at a different level of autonomy you know, or autarky. But in a peaceful world, you don't need to have autarky because you have trade across them. But the world that I want to see and the one that I conclude the, the book with is what I call the Pax Urbanica, the peace among cities. Because if it really is a city-driven world and cities are inherently peaceful in their outlook and focused on trade rather than territory, then we would have an, a world that I call the global urban network civilization, a peaceful Pax Urbanica led by these cities and all of the relationships and optimization that takes place across them. It's interesting you mentioned it's a little bit like Venice in the Renaissance period, isn't it? Yes. So I mentioned, I mentioned Venice in the Renaissance. I mentioned 21st century Singapore and Dubai and, uh, you know, Zanzibar of the colonial uh, world and Panama City of today and Hong Kong, of course, in the 19th century. And of course, the Hanseatic League of the medieval Europe as well in Northern Europe. All of these were examples of federations of cooperative cities that viewed the world as this network of commercial relationships rather than as a you know, hostile competition among nations and states. Before I'm going to ask you the last question, I wanted to know, because I've seen a lot of very beautiful maps when, as I'm reading the book, thinking about how connectivity have changed the way, how different civilizations and countries have changed in the last century. What's the future look for us? Well, you know, I, as you can tell, I believe that the more we pursue connectivity and the more we derive such great benefits from connectivity, the more I hope we will appreciate it and the more we will continue to invest in it. And at any point in time, we do have to be uh, afraid that connectivity will be rolled back. You can see it with fear over migration. You can see it with uh, you know, protectionist policies. There is always the risk, and we should always warn ourselves of the risk of rolling back uh, connectivity. But generally speaking, though, I do believe that pragmatism has prevailed. And of course, history is on my side. You know, we have had the plague, we've had World War One, we've had the financial crisis, World War Two, the Cold War. Through all of these great challenges and periods of history, where retrenchment, fear, isolationism, uh, chauvinism, and so forth were dominant, globalization has still continued to march onward and onward. And what I emphasize in the book is that we shouldn't judge globalization by this year's trade statistic or last year's trade statistic. Globalization is about our capacity to interact. It's not about a finite measurement at any given time. And with all of this infrastructure and all of these supply chains, our capacity to interact globally continues to rise at an astounding rate. And that, to me, is the best sign of all, that globalization is what uh, Nassim Taleb calls an anti-fragile system, one that actually gets stronger over time. And I certainly see that happening. So, Parag, my last question, help my audience. How do they find you and also how do they find the book? Right. Well, you can uh, find me at paragkhanna.com, P-A-R-A-G-K-H-A-N-N-A. -A -A. You can find the book linked there as well. You can find it digitally on uh, you know, Amazon or any of the other e-commerce uh, vendors. You can find it in all the bookstores, well, just about everywhere starting today. No, I actually saw it last Saturday in Kinokuniya Bookstore right. in Singapore. And I would actually prefer the physical book. 
yes. as compared to the digital copy, which I pre-read it two weeks in advance. And I want to say, uh, Bernard, for all of the Asian uh, listeners, that you know, I am, uh, you know, I have an American and a British publisher who very much expect that the premiere launch for this book would be in New York. But I, very long ago, began a negotiation to ensure that, in fact, the world premiere, so to speak, quote unquote, for this book would be in Singapore. So the physical copy that you see in Skinokunia is, in fact, the first copies being sold anywhere in the world. And I'm very pleased with that as someone living in Singapore. And I wanted, uh, you know, people in Singapore and, and our community of, of scholars, of business people, of intellectuals to be able to have and debate the book first. And I will only go to New York for the American events after I'm done in Singapore. <laughs> so you'll be heading out next week, right? <laughs> well, so I'll, I'll uh, after the Lee Kuan Yew School and um, Kinokuniya, then I will head to the US. Mm, I probably will catch you during the Kinokuniya book launch then. You can find me at bleongcw.bernalong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. We can be found in iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Acast. And of course, tweet to us and drop us a feedback anytime soon so Parag best of luck with the book launch I'm pretty sure this book will be bought by many and read by many because I have actually enjoyed the whole book through just thinking about some of the things that you're talking about well thank you so much Bernard it's always a great pleasure to talk to you